0: Thank you for that marvelous introduction. It's an extremely uh, happy occasion for me always to visit the House of Studies and uh, engage with you here. In this lecture, I mean to show that three things often thought to be opposed, the dynamism, relationality, and teleology of the image of God in man toward grace and glory, a strict distinction between nature and grace and the doctrine that man has an obediential potency to friendship with God and supernatural beatitude are not only not opposed, but that they are necessarily related elements of a coherent and true theological synthesis. To do this requires first a few words about the immateriality of the rational soul. Second, I will consider Thomas's teaching that the imago Dei in man principally consists in the intellectual nature, describing and responding to criticism of this view as insufficiently relational and separated from grace. Third, I will argue that what constitutes the obediential potency for grace and glory in man is in fact that which principally constitutes the imago Dei, namely the intellectual nature itself. Here, too, I will offer brief response to criticisms that would reduce obediential potency merely to miraculous transformation or assert that intrinsically supernatural beatitude is already the natural end, that man has a strongly unconditional natural desire for supernatural beatitude, and so what need would we have for obediential potency for grace and glory? Finally, I will conclude by observing that Thomas's theological synthesis of nature and grace provides the strongest possible foundation for the relational dynamism of the Imago Dei in man, and that it establishes simultaneously the initial dignity of man as capable of natural and supernatural good, and the greater perfection of acquired dignity that consists in achieving such good. This is a quick march through a very vast territory rather than a complete account on any point, so it's more like a cavalry ride uh, surveying the field of battle than it is uh, like a complete campaign. But I hope these remarks can at least indicate the elements that enter into Thomas's account and how they are generally interrelated. It's always been true that materialism as such constitutes one of the errors simply incompatible with Roman Catholic faith. It is defined Catholic teaching that the soul is spiritual and immortal and that God is pure spirit. Likewise, it is progressively clear throughout the modern epoch that metaphysical reliance on material evolution as sufficient to explain the differentiated forms of being and in particular to explain the cognitive and volitional aspects of human life is incoherent. The argument against any type of thoroughgoing materialism certainly has a foundation in the work of St. Thomas Aquinas, but traces back to classical Greek philosophy and in varied forms has been articulated by modern authors such as C.S. Lewis or contemporaries such as Thomas Nagel. where intellectual objectivity to be considered merely a material accident of evolution, we could have no sufficient warrant for holding the adequation of mind and reality that is required even for the truth of evolutionary theory. This is manifest in many ways. First, for example, is the commonplace argument that intellectual activity proceeds through universal concepts and applies to being as such universally, such that a wholly physicalist account, by its very nature, but somehow square the circle and reduce universality to physical particularity. But what is at stake here is not just the universal mode of conceptual knowledge, uh, which is already irreducible to physical particularity, and so irreducible to neurophysiology, but also, and more critically, the adequation or conformability of mind to being. As Thomas puts it, quote, as sound is the first audible being is the first intelligible. Thus, any denial that being is universally intelligible leaves precisely nothing intelligible, since outside of being there is nothing. The very principle of non-contradiction in its chief and metaphysical formulation that being is not non-being is, according to Thomas in Summa theologiae Prima Secundae, Question 94, Article 2, the basis for the logical principle of non-contradiction, that one doesn't speak meaningfully in affirming and denying uh, simultaneously the same of the same. Thomas, in referring to this logical principle of non-contradiction, adds quad fundator supra rationem entis et non entis, which is based on the nature of being and non-being, end quote. This is a universal principle pertaining to being as such, and if it were not, then fundamentally there could be no such thing as objectivity because the mind would have no root capacity to conform to what is the case. But the capacity to conform to any physical structure or state of affairs is not itself merely a physical structure or state of affairs. The capacity universally to conform to what is the case cannot be reduced to a particular or set of particulars in space and time. As Thomas puts it, The perfection of intellectual knowledge exists in inverse ratio to materiality. Without the immaterial capacity of human intention to extend universally to being, to conform to whatever is the case, particular physical states and conditions are mute. Even if the neural activity of the brain were known by God himself to constitute a perfectly adequate map of the universe, this would not constitute human knowledge because we would never have direct contact with the thing known but only with our own brain states which accordingly could never be judged as to their adequacy with respect to anything beyond or even including themselves. It's rather as if you were from birth locked in a room whose, topograph- whose, whose floor was a topographic map of the state you were in. No contact with the outside. Now, even if the map is completely adequate, uh, it's, it's simply impossible that you could know that. Even, even if, 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 if that floor of the room in which you're kept from birth with no contact with the outside world is a perfectly adequate map of where you are, you are in no position to judge it as a map, let alone to judge its adequacy. So this extensive project that we see today to reduce intellectual and volitional power uh, to some type of neurophysiological uh, set of accidents. Uh, It's often spoken of as a gradual and invincible process whose culmination is ineluctable and will uh, be constituted by vindicating the fundamentally physical character of knowledge as such. This looks very similar to another vast and incremental project, the vast and incremental project to reduce moral experience to the motions of the stars in astrology. And the reason for the similarity is simple. Both give us correlations where they need explanations. Two things are identical if and only if. Everything you can say of one, you can say of the other. Uh, and, and we certainly can't do that. We wouldn't need correlations if we were able to do that. So I've spent so much time on this relatively introductory aspect of philosophic anthropology, because according to Thomas, the imago Dei in man, the image of God in man, consists principally in the intellectual nature. It is not accidental that those who deny what is essential to the imago Dei are poorly situated to appreciate Christian revelation. Thomas writes in Summa theologiae Prima Pars, Question 93, Article 8, quote, thus the image of God is found in the soul according as the soul turns to God or possesses a nature that enables it to turn to God, end quote. He refers in Article 3 of the same question to, quote, that in which the image chiefly consists, that is, the intellectual nature, quote. He teaches in Article 6, quote, so we find in man a likeness to God by way of an image in his mind, but in the other parts of his being by way of a trace. As he puts it more fully in Article 6, quote, while in all creatures there is some kind of likeness to God, only in the rational creature is found a likeness of God in the mode of an image, as is explained above, whereas in other creatures we find a likeness in the mode of a trace. But that whereby the rational creature excels other creatures is the intellect or mind. Thus it remains that neither in the rational creature is the image of God to be found except in the mind. But in the other parts the rational creature may possess, we find the likeness of a trace as in other creatures, to which, according to such parts, the rational creature can in this way be likened, and quote. The imago in man is not perfect, for the perfect image is found only in the divine word, but rather it is analogical. As Thomas says, it's like the image of the king stamped in the alien medium of a coin. For Aquinas, the image of God in man, principally consists in the intellectual nature. Although the imago, the image of conformity, involves the intellect as turning to God and conforming to him, prior to this and fundamentally and foundationally, there is what has come to be called an imago of representation, possessed by saint and sinner alike, which is the foundation in human nature rendering such spiritual conformity to be possible the essentially spiritual nature of the soul quote that in which the image chiefly consists end quote this however is only equivocally the direction in which much recent thought about the imago has developed precisely because of its relational dynamism its teleological ordering to grace and glory, there's been a tendency to consider the image of God in the human person to be first and fundamentally relational, precisely for fear that rooting it in human nature, substance, and being ineluctably will distort and render impossible the genuine further ordering in grace. Such a view of the Imago Dei as foundationally constituted by the intellectual nature understood in terms of the philosophic analysis of being and substance, has come to be thought of as a distortion of the nature of the human person. Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, in particular, has encouraged more focus on the human person as inherently and constitutively relational, in accordance with the understanding of the purely relational character of the divine persons in the Trinity. This view suggests that philosophic conceptions of the person, insofar as they are not rooted in the Trinitarian mystery, are distortive. Then Cardinal Ratzinger, in his famous essay translated for Communio in 1990, as concerning the notion of person in theology, taken from the chapter, Sum Personen verstandis in der Theologie, from his work Dogma und Verkundigung," describes the concept of person as quote, a product of Christian theology. And he says, it derives from two questions. What is God and who is Christ? In this famed essay, he describes the early struggle to avoid depicting Christ as suffering defect owing to Christ's lack of human personhood while possessing human nature and being a divine person. He identifies the great Christological heresies as all modes of implying, that Christ must have lacked something essentially human. And he then writes the following, uh, quote, I believe that if one follows the struggle in which human reality had to be brought in, as it were, and affirmed for Jesus, one sees what tremendous effort and intellectual transformation lay behind the working out of this concept of person, which was quite foreign, in its inner disposition to the Greek and Latin mind. It is not conceived in substantialist, but as we shall soon see in existential terms in this light. Boethius's concept of person, which prevailed in Western philosophy, must be criticized as entirely insufficient, remaining on the level of the Greek mind. Boethius defined person as natura rationalis individua substantia, as the individual substance of a rational nature. One sees that the concept of person stands entirely on the level of substance. This cannot clarify anything about the Trinity or about Christology. It is an affirmation that remains on the level of the Greek mind, which thinks in substantialist terms, and quote. The editors of Communio, glossing the decided emphasis of then Cardinal Ratzinger on transferring the relational language of the Trinity to the human person, added to the start of his essay, the small descriptive gloss, quote, relativity toward the other constitutes the human person. The human person is the event or being of relativity." End quote. Years ago, I had very interesting exchanges with Dr. Kenneth Schmitz, who arguably inspired, at least in part, by this uh, tendency of thought of then Cardinal Ratzinger, undertook to propose an account of the human person framed in language, which he admitted expressly Aquinas reserved exclusively to the Trinity and to the, to the divine persons, the language, namely, that the human person is a subsistent relation. This notion of person as a purely relational reality is not unconnected with the related but distinct view that nature as such is so thoroughly related to grace as to be merely a residual or limit concept or dialectical notion providing no normative content for theology distinguishable from grace. Thus, the idea of a natural preamble to faith, the preamble of fide, is often transformed to a knowledge that is intrinsically post-factum, after the fact of revelation and grace. We move from a view according to which the natural order bears the impress of the divine wisdom in the eternal law, primordial revelation, to a view of nature as if it were something purely conceptual, designating only a possible space to be filled with grace, but lacking normative content. What elsewhere I have called a vacuole for grace. Some Oxfordian in something I published uh, with them looked it up, and he could only find the biological definition. But it it comes from the French, you know, a little vacuum. Uh, Of course, one sees this emptying of the ends creatum in the work of Karl Rahner. And, and, and at least in his book on the theology of Karl Barth, in Hans Urs von Balthasar, who expressly indicates his approval of Rahner's idea of nature as merely a residual or limit concept. The proposition that nature is not a residual or limit concept, not merely a placeholder for grace, lacking all ontological density, but a momentous reality And moreover, a reality manifesting primordial revelation and eternal law, a theonomic or divinely ordered reality, is a philosophic and theological affirmation strongly in tension with this relationalist tendency of thought. Either nature, substance, and being are presupposed by grace and revelation, or they are not and either they are even after the fall to some degree intelligible in terms of their proportionate ends in precision from Revelation or they are not. This is not to say that Revelation cannot cast light upon nature, but only that nature has a limited and relative intelligibility as flowing from creation in itself. When Gaudium it spez famously describes Christ as revealing man to himself, this was clearly not meant to suggest that prior to revelation, men were confusing themselves with dill pickles. Uh, In other words, the proposition is that uh, Christ, the incarnate word, reveals to man the profundity of which human nature is capable in relation to God, a profundity in divine friendship of which we'd be wholly unaware, lacking revelation. Doubtless, the philosophic account of the human person is incomplete, precisely insofar as it abstracts from the supernatural density of man, destiny of man. Yet for Thomas, the understanding of man's supernatural destiny presupposes, incorporates, and preserves the truth of the created natural order with its proportionate and proximate ends as distinct from the ultimate and supernatural end. With the overwhelming preponderance of fathers and doctors, St. Thomas holds that man is created in grace from the beginning, yet he also holds that this creation in grace presupposes the ontological subjectivity of the ens creatum, as specified by proportionate ends, so that within this initial moment of creation, there is in one specific respect a priority of created nature. In any case the idea that the Amago day is constituted in man by his relation to God appears demonstrably false. It suggests something that is true, namely that the Amago day is relational and dynamic, that it is providentially ordered to blossom in grace and in glory, but however important relationality is to our understanding of spirit there's something else that is most evidently prior to relationality, namely, being and substance. Real relation presupposes the realities related. If there is no creature, then there is no real relation of the creature to God. Non-existent, non-substantial creatures do not and cannot have real relations of any kind, much less a real relation to God. If they are to have such real relation to God, they must first be, they must exist, they must be subjects of being possessed of a certain ontological density. It follows that whatever relationality the imago Dei in man has, this relationality is founded upon being in substance and can be no substitute for them. God has no real relation to the creature, inasmuch as God is infinitely perfect and stands in no relation of dependence upon his creation. He is not essentially changed through his creation. In Book 2, Distinction 1, Question 1, Article 2, Add 4, of his scriptum on the Sentences, Thomas writes that, considered as active, creation designates only the divine nature in itself with a conceptual relation to the creature but considered as passive, the relation of createdness is a quasi-accident in the creature, a quasi-accident in the creature, founded upon the being of the creature as received from God. Manifestly, something cannot be really in a creature if the creature really does not exist. To have being from another is necessarily to have being Since non-existent beings do not have real relations, it is impossible for the creature to be constituted by its relation to God. It's not constituted by the relation to God. It's constituted by God, right? Without a real created subject of being, there would be nothing to be related. The being, substantiality and nature of the creature is thus absolutely presupposed by the creature's relation to God. Accordingly, we begin to get the glimmering of the idea that mere Greek substantialism may have more to offer than at first met the eye. It is precisely the understanding of being, substance, and nature that is the foundation for the doctrine of the Imago Dei and of its relationality and teleological dynamism to grace and glory. The very thing that is treated as the antipode, as opposed to its relation, is the foundation of the relation. The spiritual nature of the soul understood as constituting a certain deficient but real analogical image of God in man is ordered in grace to become the imago Christi and finally the imago gloriae, the image of God in the glory of the beatific vision. But doesn't the natural foundational character of the imago Dei, seal it off from its dynamism and teleology in grace toward the supernatural end of the beatific vision? The answer is no, because this foundational sense of the Imago Dei is the obediential potency of the human creature for grace and glory. The doctrine that man has an obediential potency for grace and glory has been severely criticized. An adequate response to all these criticisms can't be given in a brief compass, but what, what can be done is to point out the character of the doctrine, its importance within theology, and the erroneous character of certain principal criticisms. First, the nature of obediential potency. In De Virtutibus in Communi, Article 10, Ad 13, Thomas addresses an objection to the effect that acts are of the same genus as their potencies but creatures, by definition, lack potency for a divine act. However, inasmuch as creatures have different purely passive potencies in relation to different active agencies, a purely passive obediential potency for acts achievable only with divine aid is intelligible. As Thomas writes, quote, and accordingly we say that the whole creation is in a certain potency of obedience according as the whole creation obeys God to be able to receive in itself whatever God wills, quote. He argues that water or earth have different passive potencies in respect of the diverse active agencies of fire, the heavenly bodies, and God. These diverse passive potencies in relation to different active agencies are partially rooted in the natures involved. And this, co- this is the first misunderstanding of obediential potency we come to, because it's become very, it, it became very common uh, to view obediential potency as uh, reducible only to miraculous transformation, the capacity of water to become wine, uh, stone into bread. That can be viewed as the lowest stratum of obediential potency. But if it were the only one, the conclusion of the critics, for example, uh, the later work of Gilson uh, states this view in his Letters to Henri de Lubac. If if it were the only view, then of course, it would be necessarily inapplicable to the relation of uh, the order of nature to the order of grace. Because it would imply that in order to receive grace, we had to lose nature as the stone if it is uh, transfigured to bread, must cease being a stone. God can raise up sons of Abraham from the very stones, but were he to do it, they would no longer be stones, but human beings. By contrast, owing to the possession of essentially spiritual powers of intellect and will, because of our possession of human nature, the human person is able to be elevated in grace to friendship with God. Man does not cease to be human, as the stone would cease to be a stone by being elevated to the divine friendship. Yet this potency to be elevated by and in grace is not a natural potency, because there is no proportionate active power of nature enabling the creature to be so elevated. Thomas is very clear that even angelic will cannot be inclined toward the supernatural apart from supernatural aid. To speak of a natural desire implies some proportionate active power in man because natural desire is for the proportionate natural good, a principle taught universally by St. Thomas. This is something that de Lubac denied, but without adequate uh, consideration of the texts, of which there are dozens. I mean, it is not a small or or dubious mistake. Uh, I'll give one example from Thomas's words um, from the Questiones Disputate De Vertutibus, question four having to do with hope, Article 1, Add 8, quote, it should be said that the proportionate good moves the appetite. For those things are not naturally desired that are not proportionate. But that eternal beatitude is a good proportionate to us, this is from the grace of God, and thus hope which tends to this good as proportionate to man to possess, is a gift divinely infused," quote. In the Questiones Disputate de Veritate, Question 14, Article 10, Add 2, Thomas contrasts the supernatural good with the natural good. Writing of the supernatural good, quote, "...the other is the good which is out of all proportion with man's nature." Because his natural powers are not enough to attain to it either in thought or in desire. One cannot apart from grace, according to Thomas, even desire specifically supernatural beatitude. Because no finite nature is proportioned to this good. And all natural desire is such is specified by created realities. This is true of the natural desire for God, which reaches God materially, but which formally is reaching God under the aspect of cause of these effects, which is a disproportionate incognito, because there is infinitely more in God than to be cause of these effects. In fact, to be cause of these effects doesn't even have the dignity of being an accident in God. Right? It's not even an accident in God that God is the cause of these effects. Because of the complete and infinite transcendence of God. Some have argued that the Voluntas Ut Natura, the world taken as a nature, has the inner life of God for its object. But Thomas says, again, in many places, that what Voluntas Ut Natura refers to is simply what befits the power as a nature. And it's very clear that, for Thomas, the answer to this about the human will is the good in general, universal good. And this is much different than the universality of the divine good. The universal good in general is good to which perfection may be added. No perfection may be added to God, to the universality of the divine good. This would be like saying that because the object of metaphysics is universal being, then when we study it, uh, we're, we're implicitly and actually studying um, the Divine Substance in itself, in itself. It's simply not possible. It is man's rational soul that renders him capable of elevation in grace. It is the rational soul with its powers of intellect and will specified by universal true and good, that render the human person able to be elevated to the beatific vision. And here, we need to be careful. Again, it's very common for people to reason something like this. Man is intellectually and volitionally ordered to universal true and universal good, but God is the subsistent universal good. And so the intellect and the will are simply naturally ordered to uh, God himself directly. But The natural universality of intellect and will are, to use a metaphoric or language as it were, horizontal. The intellect extends to universal being not all at once, but serially, sequentially, and distributively. That is, there's nothing on the side of the intellect to keep it from knowing first this good and then that good and then some other good. There is no material constraint on the part of the intellect. There may be a constraint on the side of evidence. But even then, we can inquire with very little evidence. And there's, there's no constraint on the side of the intellect as such. But that horizontal, that horizontal universality is enormously different from the unique knowledge and love of the infinite God. This is literally that knowledge and love about which Thomas cherished these treasured lines from Corinthians 2.9, quote, eye hath not seen, neither has ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him, end quote. As Thomas points out, the beatific vision exceeds every purely natural capacity, whether of man or angel. Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, third book, chapter 52, exceeding all created natural capacity to know. Since the desire for God is specified by natural knowledge of God in finite created effects, it follows that natural desire for God doesn't know what it is desiring, whereas grace desire, which truly is on the way toward knowing what it desires, is rooted in the reality of God himself. Man's obediential potency for grace, when actuated by grace, reveals the profundity of his own nature as Capax Dei, capable of divine friendship. The similitude of the stained glass window illumined by the sun's rays well bespeaks the character of this doctrine of obediential potency applied to the relation of nature and grace. The stained glass window, were it cognizant, could it know, wouldn't know what it were missing if it were never to irradiate its bright colors under the influence of the sun. It would be a window still and not fail to be part of the whole structure of which it would be an integral member. Nor would it lack its own participation in the good of the whole as a specific perfection. Yet its nature stands properly revealed only under the extrinsic causality of the sun's illumination. Seeing it so illumined, we know what stained glass truly is for. Just so does Christ reveal the profundity of man to himself, the profundity of being capable of divine friendship. In conclusion, the incarnate word reveals man to himself. Far from rendering revelation and grace and the dynamism of the image of God in man to grace and glory impossible, it is the dignity of created human nature that it may be elevated in grace. This initial dignity rooted in the spirituality of the human soul is further ordered to the even more crucial acquired dignity of conformity with the divinely ordained order and with God himself. And it is adequately understood only in relation to the common good, both naturally and supernaturally. This second dignity is greater and even more crucial than the first. For we may have the first dignity, the imago of representation in this life, and live discordant lives. And we may have the first dignity in the next life and burn with preternatural fire in alienation from God. The initial dignity of man, the representative imago, is ordered to and specified by an order of progressively more transcendent or common goods in nature and in grace, and is ordered to become for us the imago gloriae, the image of glory in the celestial city of beatific vision. In this sense, we may say that only the classical account of the imago dei provided in the work of St. Thomas Aquinas adequately founds and defends the relational dynamism of the Imago Dei to grace and glory. Thank you.